You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Good morning. Well, it's February again, and every year in the month of February, we do a series where we talk about mental and emotional health. In Canada, every year, one in five people will suffer from mental illness. Um, We don't all experience a mental health issue, but all of us need to grow in the area of our emotional health. So we want lives that are marked by the peace of God that passes all understanding. We want to be less defensive, impatient, argumentative, fearful, anxious, and we want to be more like Jesus, where people who experience us, experience us to be loving and kind, peaceful, compassionate. God, our God, is concerned with every area of our life. Now, every year when we head into this series, we really only scratch the surface. We're not mental health professionals, but we want to encourage you every year in your journey of mental and emotional wellness. So this year, our theme is my story. So what do we mean when we say my story? And what does it have to do with mental and emotional health? Everything. Um, Our story is more than just the facts about where you were born or who you grew up with or your life experiences, good or bad. Um, It's how these experiences marked us and affect the way we relate to others now. It also affects how we see and understand and relate to God. Uh, Author Ian Morgan Cron says this, if your father lavished you with praise only when you won in sports, or if you heard disappointment in your mother's voice when you got a B plus on your report card, did you think to yourself, oh, well, my parents mean well, but they're shallow people who need me to be their little wonder kind to buoy their self-esteem and make them look good in the eyes of their friends. No, likely you noted their reactions and concocted a story, a message, something deep down inside of you, a story around the message that you heard. I will have to win every game. I have to ace every test. I have to succeed at everything in life or people won't love me. We live in a fallen world, all of us has a story comprised of the good times, joy, happiness, as well as moments of tragedy and pain. Most of us are actually unaware of the story that we've developed inside of us. Not what happened to us, but the story we tell inside of us or how we live out of that story. But we've developed a story nonetheless. We react all the time based on it. We tend to bury the effects of the scary and tragic, either consciously or subconsciously. Remember, I have to get an A to be loved. The story we developed growing up is actually a good thing and was necessary in childhood to navigate life. Again, as Ian Cron says, what supports us in childhood thwarts us in adulthood. Our old stories continue to operate autonomously in the shadows of the heart and become the enemies of our growth. 
unpacking our story in the light of God's love and truth is the only way to grow. We are going to approach this series in three parts. Part one today, see your story. Part two, own your story. And part three, rewrite your story. I start today with see your story, and I hope to give you some tools today to help you look into your own story. My goal today is actually to get you asking questions. In fact, I hope by the end of today, you have more questions than you have answers. Rich and Bert, they're going to take you, they're going to continue on this journey for you. But today, I just want to get you asking questions, questions about how the people and events in your life formed who you are today. Understanding our story requires curiosity, it's a lifelong journey, and it requires courage. We're going to just, um, so this is uh, understanding your story and, and today beginning to see your story. There's a lot of directions that we could come at this through. Um, I'm just going to take a peek at one today. And uh, there's many other ways that we've been, that we've developed that story within us for good or for harm. Um, it might be a great experience. I was thinking my teenage years, I had the best boss in my part-time job who taught me so many things, a good and formative experience. Also in that time frame, I lost a good friend in an auto accident, but we're not going to do those things. Today, we're going to talk about something. If you were in the therapist's office, they might call it your family of origin, the significant caretakers, your siblings, the people you grew up with, the first social circle you were a part of, often your biological family or adoptive family. As parents, as parents, we know that the formative years of somebody's life, often described as zero to eight or the broader circle of zero to 18, the formative years are important years in the lives of our children. But what about your formative years? What about the things that happened in your life that formed that internal story from your childhood? In other words, your family of origin. Your family of origin has a considerable impact on your development. As many studies can attest, your family of origin helps to shape your worldview, determines how you relate to and interact with others, and even has a big effect on your mental and your physical health. These influences will impact you much more than just childhood. The way you were raised affects every aspect of your future. Uh, Dr. Dan Allender says it likes it this. He weighs in. Our story begins with the characters who gave us birth, including their past relationships with their parents and issues such as success and shame and power and abuse and love and loss and addiction and heartaches and secrets and family myths. Our, births, our birth is a beginning, but we owe our existence to the generations that came before us. Our beginning, which took place before we were born, signals some of the themes that will play out in our life. So here we are. We are going to start today, and I want to give you a framework for starting to ask yourself some questions. And we're going to do that. I'm going to tell you the story today of a man from the book of Genesis 
named Joseph. Now, I can't do it all because Joseph, um, I think he was born in chapter 30 and he died in chapter 50. So you can imagine that that would take us a super long time. I'm going to do some highlights from the life of Joseph. In fact, I'm going to step back a generation or two because as Dan Allender said, your story starts way before you were born. But I, I need to do this for you and for me because anyone who's read this story even one time knows it has a happy ending. But we can't start there. Today, you're going to slow down with me and you're going to look at some of the other parts of the story. And yes, it ended well for Joseph and his family, but that was nothing about how they lived and some of the choices and decisions they made and the brokenness in their lives. That was the intervention of the grace of God in their story. And that is, will be true about your story and mine. So let's begin at the end, the end of Genesis chapter 50. Joseph says this to his brothers who are pretty scared that now that their father is dead, um, Joseph's going to do something bad for them. But here's his perspective. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Okay, we're going to set aside the happy ending and we're going to turn back the clock of time years and years before, and we're going to look at some things that aren't so pretty. So, um, Joseph, his dad was Jacob, whose dad was Isaac, whose dad was Abraham. Isaac, um, the story of his birth was miraculous. We won't go back there. Uh, Isaac married a woman named Rebecca and Rebecca was barren. She was not getting pregnant and Isaac called out to the Lord and, um, Rebecca conceived and gave birth to twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Again, another story worth looking at on your own time. But um, huh, she had twins, twin boys. Now, here's a key part of this story. As we're building this perspective on mm, the health or unhealth in this family, Genesis 25, 28 says this, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. That sounds a little shallow, but okay. Isaac loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob. Tuck that one away as we move on. So years go by. Isaac loves Esau. Rebecca loves Jacob. Isaac is on his deathbed and he's going to do what a man of his time did. And that is he's going to bless with his words, his firstborn. Of course, Rebecca knows this is going to happen. So she works out a scheme. Isaac is blind or somewhat at this point. She works out a scheme where Jacob comes in and pretends to be Esau to receive the blessing of his father. Rebecca, boy, if you take a look at her, she's a bit of a trickster and a schemer, and she kind of uses some deceit and manipulation more than once. And uh, of course, Jacob listens to mom because she's his favorite and who knows what that relationship is like. And he goes in and his father lays hands on him and he blesses Jacob. Well, of course, Esau finds out about it. And Esau's furious. Yeah, yeah. Isaac says to his son, he says, um, oh, your brother deceived me. He came in deceitfully and now he's got the blessing. Well, Genesis 27 goes on and it says this, and you can imagine this makes sense, right? Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessings which his father had blessed him. And Esau said 
to himself, the days of mourning of my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. This is not a pretty story. Um, once more, before we lay Isaac aside and lay Jacob aside, um, Rebecca intervenes deceptively. She she finds out what Esau is plotting to do, and she goes to Isaac and she says, um, I don't want Jacob to marry any of the girls in our neighborhood, so I want to send him to my brother Laban's house, and he can find somebody there to marry. So um, a little bit deceitful. She didn't say, um, hey, uh, Esau wants to kill Jacob, so maybe we should get him out of here for his own safety. No, she spun a tale to manipulate and get Jacob to a place of safety. Good, bad, a uh, little, little confusing there. Jacob leaves town and moves in with Uncle Laban. And if we could look at Uncle Laban, again, a bit of a manipulator, trickster, more deception in that family line. So... Just before we move on to Joseph. So Jacob, he grew up without the love and affirmation of a father. We've got some favoritism happening here. Esau was a favorite child of Isaac. Jacob was a favorite child of Rebecca. Rebecca's solution to so many problems seemed to be deception. Esau's solution was violence. And Jacob had to flee from his family to be safe. So what do we see in the early years of Jacob's life? Remember, uh, Dr. Allender talks about um, it's not just a lot of stuff that happens before you're born forms the patterns in your life. So what do we see in Jacob's life? Trauma, favoritism, sibling rivalry, violence, lies and hidden stuff and deception. The story continues. Um, Of course, Jacob goes to be with Uncle Laban. Laban has two daughters, um, and Jacob falls in love with one, and his uncle tricks him into marrying one and then the other one. And um, and in Genesis 29, it says, um, Jacob, he loved Re- Rachel more than Leah. Ah, here we go again, that pattern. He loved Rachel more than Leah. And actually, the way the Lord looked at it, it says the Lord saw that Leah was hated. So we see the pattern We see some of the patterns beginning to repeat themselves. And now our story, Um, now the next generation, Joseph. Let's read together from Genesis 37, beginning in verse 1. And we're we're not going to do all of Genesis 37, though we could, but we won't. Um, Okay, Jacob. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock of his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's, well, he, they call him his wives, but I don't, they were his concubines, okay? So lots of, lots of interesting family stuff there. Now, Israel, here we go again, Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because he was the son of his old age. Interesting thing, he did have one more son after him, but... Um, another complicated part to this family's story. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brother saw their father, loved him more than all his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. What do we see? 
Again, we see the favoritism. And what is birthed out of that? Sibling rivalry, but at its deepest, hatred and even an inability to converse um, civilly with siblings. Let's keep going. We're going to jump ahead to verse uh, 18, excuse me. So they, the brothers, they're out looking after the sheep. They saw him. Joseph coming from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Okay. For those of you who might not be familiar, just let me insert. Joseph had two dreams um, and God probably gave him the dreams. They were dreams where he saw his family bowing down before him. This actually happens later on, but was it the smart thing for a teenager to say to his brothers, hey, you know, I have these dreams and you're going to bow down before me. So it, it's sowing this um, dissension in the family. He was part of the problem, not the solution. I, anyway, let's go back. Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, ah, one of the brothers, okay, there's a lot of them. One of them has the sense to say, uh-uh-uh. So when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands. Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, do not lay a hand on him that they, that he, he was going to come back later and rescue him out of their hand and restore him to their father. It continues. So, um, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of the robe, the really nice robe of many colors that his dad made him. They, they took it from him. They threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they listened to this. Then they sat down to eat. So they've taken their brother. They've decided they're thinking about killing him, and they just sit down and eat. Um, We won't read the rest of that right this second. Um, So they saw him, they sat down, and they ate. Later on, just reflecting back on the story, later on in, um, in chapter 42, the brothers actually told a little more of this themselves. They're kind of, it's the moment of confession. They said, we saw his soul in distress when he begged us and we did not listen to him. Or another version says, we saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. Well, to finish off our reading from Genesis 37, then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood, and they sent that robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Here comes the deception again. This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned his son for many days. Now the story goes on. Go ahead and read it. Um, We know 
Scripture tells us that the Lord was with Joseph. We know God looked after him. That's the intervention of the grace of God. That's not how people lived, treated one another, the dynamics of the family, the things that were passed on from generations. That's the grace of God intervening in their lives. So Joseph, you know, sometimes when I read about his early life, he wasn't a very nice kid, and I don't particularly like him. Um, he was proud and boastful and, um, you know, a bit of a tattletale. And um, I kind of get why his brothers d- it didn't sit well with them. But what were the things that had gone on in this young man's life to form him into who he was, even at 17 or 18 years old? Trauma. The loss of a parent. His mother died when he was a little tiny kid. Ah, not just his mother, but his father's favorite wife. There were four women. Rachel was his favorite. And speaking of favoritism, it was so blatant that he would give his son whatever this was, this coat of many colors, that an, a, that the other brothers, and there were 12 boys altogether, the other brothers would look and it would be obvious every day that he was their father's favorite. Um, and Joseph did not mind flaunting that. Sibling rivalry to the depth that they were willing to kill their own brother. But there's Joseph bringing a bad report. Um, some some people, some theologians say this, it could have even been some mistruth. It's hard to completely translate that word. It could be a lot of things. He might have come and lied to his father about his brothers. Um, but whatever it was, was it misleading? Was it slanderous? Was it truthful? Then, of course, within the family system, again, there was the threat of violence, and then there actually was violence towards their brother in throwing him in a pit. And once again, lies and deception. Have you ever thought about this? And sometimes this is why we need to slow down and think. So those brothers maintained that lie about the death of Joseph. Get this, for more than 20 years, the family lived in that deception, in that story that was told that was not the least bit true. So here we go. Pete Scazzaro writes, teaches on emotionally healthy spirituality. I love this quote. True spirituality frees us to live joyfully in the present. It requires us, however, going back in order to go forward. This takes us to the very heart of spirituality and discipleship in the family of God, breaking free from the destructive, sinful patterns of our pasts to live the life of the love God intends. Pete Scazzaro, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Okay, so we've read some pretty extreme stuff. What about your family? What about mine? Um, Maybe it wasn't quite so dramatic. Maybe there's things that you can see passed on from one generation to the next, to the next. Maybe it's ways of living. Maybe it's something like alcoholism. Maybe, um, well, there's just so many things. But what about your family and mine? Here's a question. Did you lose a parent? Maybe you lost a parent through divorce. Maybe you were the child of a single mom. Maybe... Um, you lost a parent through death. Maybe you just had a parent who was absent. Maybe they were absent living in a different country. Maybe they were absent and they lived in your very household. 
Bert and I grew up with dads who, um, they were dads of their era, and it was about work and financial provision for their family, and they did a good job of it, my dad and Bert's. But were they involved in our lives as kids and part of our foundational years? A mm, little more questionable there. How about the love and affirmation of your family? Did you have words of encouragement spoken over you? Did you have um, the blessing of your parents' uh, building you up and calling out the good in you and naming what was good as they parented you? Or did you just have criticism and, um, or maybe no input whatsoever from a parent? Did your parents favor one of the siblings? Did your parents favor you or your brother or your sister? I was having a conversation about this sermon with my therapist a couple weeks ago. Um, and, uh, just telling him what I was going to talk about. And I started talking about favoritism because we saw it throughout these the stories, these lives that we just looked at, a snapshot of today. So um, I just said to him, and he's a therapist. This is his training. I said, it's from what I've learned from some of my friends from different places in the world, favoritism is very accepted in a lot of cultures. In fact, usually the favorite kid knows they're the favorite kid. It's said out loud. The kids who isn't the favorite knows, oh, you know, Johnny, he's the favorite. Um, and yet, have you ever stopped to think what message that spoke? Remember, we're talking about that story that's on the inside of you. So did you grow up in a culture or in a family with favoritism? Were you teased, bullied, shamed, demeaned? Um, my brother, looking back, he was not very nice to me. In fact, he teased and bullied me. Some, sometimes this happened outside of your home. It happened in my house. And, uh, and my mom didn't intervene. And I love my brother and I loved my mom. But, you know, looking back with adult eyes at my childhood experiences, I, I think, hmm, <clears throat> that wasn't a good part of my formation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Maybe you weren't sold or put in a pit, sold to the travelers who came along and taken to Egypt. But maybe you were sent. Maybe you were sent to a different family. Maybe you were sent to a different country. Maybe you were sent um, away to school at a young age, maybe a youngster, maybe in your early or mid-teens. How did that affect you and who you were? Again, I said, I want to give you questions. I don't have answers for you, but I want you to start and ask questions about those formative years in your life. Maybe there were some things in your family that are hidden that you were never allowed to talk about. Maybe it was addiction. Maybe there was an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy. Maybe there was some infidelity within your family and they were like tight-lipped family secrets you don't talk about. Look, I'm not saying you need to talk about every family thing in every situation, but I want you to look at what the story was that your family told and how it affected you. So finally today, three steps and three steps of part one of a three-part series. How's that? Three steps to see your story. The first one is you're going to tell your story because as you start to talk about your story, clarity comes. Now, you don't have to tell your story to everybody, but you should have a safe place to talk about those years and what formed you. Maybe it's a good friend. Maybe it's a small group leader. Maybe it's a therapist or counselor. And you know from all of us who ever speak here in front of this mic, pretty much we tell you, hey, 
therapy, counseling, it can really take you in the journey of who you are and helping you to become who God wants you to be. So the next thing is to write your story. And the last thing I'm going to give you are a few, and I'm, I mean just a handful of tools for the journey. So tell your story. Um, you need a compassionate person who you can connect with, who can help you connect the meaning and the effects of your story. You need to tell your story to someone you trust. And you need to take note of their response to your story because often on many levels, as you tell someone of something from your childhood, maybe they ask a good clarifying question. Um, maybe they draw things out of you. Maybe their response in words. Often it's their, res their physical response Whereas you tell something that just seems part of the monologue of your story, they go, oh, I can't believe that your mother said that to you. Oh, I can't believe that that happened or this incident. And their reaction, you go, huh. And you begin to look at your story through a different lens, through adult eyes, not through the eyes of the child that scripted that story. I was telling... Um, I was telling my therapist one time, a number of years ago, that my mom wanted a boy. I had two sisters, then my brother, and then I was number four. And my mom wanted a boy. Perfect, right? Two girls, two boys. And it was before the day of ultrasound, so that when I was born, lo and behold, I was a girl. Well, I heard this for the next 45 years. My mother would tell it as part of my story. This is my daughter, Sheila. She was supposed to be a boy. Her name was going to be Peter James. And this was what I heard. And because it was such a, just a part of family, you know, the stories family tell, I never considered the impact of that on me until sitting in my therapist's office and I was just telling her this story as lighthearted as what I'm trying to tell you now. And her face and her reaction to me, and she made me stop. And she said to me, that was just not right. Now, I've wondered where some of my insecurities and fear of rejection and abandonment and fears come in in my life. And you know what? This story was a little part of it. And as I could identify it, it was a the adult me saying, that was not right. It was harmful. And thank you, Jesus. As I see that, I can learn to live in freedom and let God heal that part of my heart and of my life. The next thing is to write your story. And this might be helpful to you. Listen to this quote by Dr. Dan Allender. By writing your stories, you begin to see them in a different way. And I say stories, I, well, he'll, he'll go on. Let me go on. Let me finish his quote. He says it better than me. Stories reveal themselves to be something other than what you thought. You can walk and talk at the same time, but writing forces you to step off the path and sit under a tree so you can ponder. I feel like when I write things down, it slows me down. And I take that thought or that memory, that childhood experience, and I start to, to unpack it, kind of like sitting under a tree and pondering. So um, you look, at, you can look at that thing again through grown-up eyes. A couple of weeks ago, I was doing, um, I, I was listening to something and I was meditating and I was thinking about New Year's resolutions, which I never make. 
However, I was thinking about them and I thought, um, I started to think about weight loss and okay, I haven't seen most of you for a while, but um, probably, you know, when we do so about another, we, we're not going to judge because maybe most of us are carrying a few extra COVID related pandemic pounds. But <laughs> I started thinking about weight loss and it's not just weight loss. It begins, it starts to be some of the guilt and the insecurities that that, um, that, that brings up in me. And so I say right, but I actually pulled out my phone and I started typing in it as I started to think about things. And I'm just going to read some of it to you because you'll see my how things flowed in my thoughts as I thought about New Year's resolutions and weight loss. Was I a fat child? Chubby? Was I really? Because I grew up thinking I was a fat kid. Um, somebody probably said it maybe once, maybe 10 times, but it became part of my identity on the inside. If I look back at pictures, anyway, who may, then I, then I, my, my train of thought, who makes food choices for a young child between the ages of zero and five, who cooked for me, who did the grocery shopping, who fed me? If I was a chubby child, it was not my fault. And then I started thinking about the blame and the shame. And my family did a lot of finger pointing. And I started to think about this. I'm writing. I'm writing. I'm writing while I'm typing. But, And then I was realizing how many times I felt like I did something wrong when I was a kid, but I didn't know what I did wrong. And this was one of the places. And then I started thinking about, and how has this affected me lifelong? And I'm not going to go through the rest of this for the sake of time. But I got through the end of it and I thought, Lord, what do you want me to have from this? Well, some of it was to identify what I avoid and how I withdraw and bring me into a new place of freedom, a new, um, yeah, a new place of freedom. So tell your story to someone safe and trusted and listen to them and watch them and let them ask you questions. Write things. Write down some stuff. And now tools for the journey as we close up today. This month through, uh, you'll, you'll see more of this, but through our different me mediums of, of communication, you're going to get some other um, resources that we hope can help you on your journey to emotional wellness and growth and wholeness. I, tools I've used along the way. There was a lot of alcoholism in my family. There's this thing called the laundry list for children of alcoholics. I got that list and I went through and I went, yeah, probably half of these apply to me. How I kind of live life. Um, there's other things, adverse childhood experiences. There's a little 10 point quiz. You could, if you put adverse childhood experience test or something in a Google search, you get this 10 point thing that just, oh, it's pretty general. There's way more than this, but it, it helps you just look at your family of origin and what things, traumatic things might have been part of you that you need to pursue and, and, uh, and growing, see God's healing in, deal with. Um, there is a, a guided reflection and writing exercise online. Okay, Natalie's going to put this in the Facebook chat, but we'll we'll give it to you from other um, from other sources. It's eight pages by Dr. Dan Allender, guided reflection and writing exercise, and it just helps you take some memories and ask some good questions and work through them and pray over them. 
Then there's some books we're going to recommend. The first one I want to show you is by Dan Allender because he's helped me personally a lot. This one's called To Be Told. Natalie is putting in the Facebook chat the Amazon link if you want to click on and this get this one. The next one is um, Pete Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I only have the digital copy of this and the audio one. So um, here's the picture of it. Great you want a starting point for looking at your emotional health? Start here. Um, another one. Okay, this is my last point. Because um, as I was thinking about this, I thought I was thinking about books and recommendations. And, um, and I thought of this book, Third Culture Kids Growing Up Among the Worlds. Now you say, what does this have to do with emotional health? Well, for our church, oh, and for our city of Toronto. So third culture kids, uh, there, there's a broad definition of them, but this book is a good book to read if you're, um, if you're living in a country that you weren't born in, if you um, are raising children in a country other than the country of your birth. If you know anybody who didn't grow up in this country, if you know anybody raising kids who the parents weren't born here, if you moved a lot when you were a kid, if you have two parents from two different cultures, did I cover everybody in the church? I sure hope so, because this is a book you should all have in your um, digital library or on your bookshelf, or you can borrow it from the public library, believe it or not. It is such a helpful tool. Why am I telling you this? Because we, because we here in Canada and Toronto need to understand how even our cultural story affects our story. There are other things, other tools, other things. We are going to drop them in our social media feeds in the days and weeks ahead. But I want to finish with this one quote from Dr. Allender. Choosing to engage our stories honestly requires a great deal examining the story of courage. Choosing a richer life requires revisiting the past, which may reopen painful wounds of failure and betrayal. The only reason worth entering the pain is the hope that somehow it can be transformed, that through it we will learn to love better and will know more joy. Join us the next couple of weeks as we continue this journey. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.